Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Hey, I like it. Um, My name is Liz Griffin. I have the privilege of being one of your pastors here at Antioch Austin, along with my husband, J.D., who is not here today, but you'll see him again next week. Um, And I love what Mike O'Quinn was just saying when he was up here talking about church being family and an army. I think that's such a cool depiction. And there's one thing I want to let you guys in on that's coming up that is um, a combo of that family and army thing, and that is called World Mandate. Has anyone ever been to World Mandate? Awesome. World Mandate is Antioch's uh, annual conference. The, uh, the motto is Worship God, Change the World. And it's an amazing time of us joining with other Antioch churches around the U.S., um, really encountering God in powerful ways and hearing about what he's doing in the nations of the earth. So whether that's you're a church planner or you're an entrepreneur, you get to come and encounter God and really be empowered to see the kingdom of God advanced in your sphere. It's an awesome time. I really want to encourage everyone to go. Uh, You can register online at worldmandate.com. And early bird pricing ends December 3rd. So if you sign up now, it's $65, and then the price will go up from there. But please check it out. It's an awesome time. Our family goes every year, and it's great. There's a kids' conference that coincides with it. So if you're thinking about taking your kids, you're going to want to register soon before it sells out. Um, But you guys need to all check it out. Um, Okay, so we are in the middle of a relationship series that J.D. started last week called It's Not You, It's Me. Um, If you missed it last week, you can check it out, and then I'm going to preach this week, and then J.D. will be back wrapping up the series next weekend. Uh, But before we jump into today's message, I want to give you guys a little bit of background about me, something that's a very very important part of my story, of my perspective, and my point of view. And we are family, so I'm going to let you see some pictures of junior high, okay? So before you put them up, before you put them up. So when I was in junior high, uh, my family lived in Siberia. So ages 11, 12, and 13, I lived in Siberia. For the 75% of you who don't quite know where Siberia is, It is a part of Russia. I get asked that all the time. It's not its own country. It's the eastern part of Russia where it's incredibly cold. It would start, you know, it's these beautiful mountains, and it would start snowing in September and melt in May. It's freezing in these huge birch forests. It's absolutely beautiful. And for me, being from Texas, it was a pretty magical thing. But I do have some pictures to show you. Are they up? Okay, that's me with a whole bunch of snow. Um... When I say it's cold there, y'all, it was cold. Okay, what's the next picture? <laughs> okay, so this is called Lake Baikal. It is the largest freshwater lake in the world. And that's my dad walking, and that's me crawling because I have no balance. And it's ice, and I literally, I just have to crawl across it. But, y'all, it would get so cold in the winter. Like I said, Baikal is a huge lake, and trains would have to run around it to get to the, to get to the cities. And it would be like a 24-hour trip to get even just halfway around. But in the winter, it's so cold where I lived that um, the ice would freeze deep enough across the lake that you would, uh, they would lay train tracks across it, and the trains would just run across the frozen lake. It's so cold. Okay, I have one last picture. That's my family. 
Doesn't everyone have a family photo like that? Um, please know and get on to me about that we're wearing fur. When you live in negative 30 degree weather, you don't really care anymore. You're like, whatever's going to keep me warm. So there we are. There's junior high Liz. I always say I have more awkward junior high photos than anyone else, and I really, really do. But anyway, so we can put the pictures down. I just thought I'd bring you into a little bit of um, what my world was like growing up. And, you know, it's crazy now because this morning, I don't even know, it's like 60 degrees, 50 degrees, I don't know. And I'm like shivering as we're setting up. I'm so cold. And I used to be, you know, outside playing in negative 20 degree weather. I just acclimated, I guess. But we would go and play and it would be so cold outside. Uh, but it didn't matter. You know, we'd bundle up, and it's negative 20, negative 25, and go out sledding for several hours and, and come back. But one day, um, well, actually, if you were uh, waiting at a bus stop or a tram stop, there would be these strips of ice because there was so much snow that would fall. And along the sidewalks, it would get packed down into this almost like snow cement thing. And people would literally ice skate down the sidewalk instead of walking down the sidewalk because um, you could because it was just like this ice snow cement thing that was made um, and at the bus stops or outside of buildings anywhere people would be waiting around there was this like game thing that everyone would do and I don't know if they poured water for it to freeze or what they did but there would be every so often these just strips maybe from the end of the stage to where I'm at now that was just like a solid strip of just ice, like not the snow ice combo, just slippery ice. And what you would do is you'd like back up and you'd run and you'd slide on the ice and whoever could go the furthest won the game, right? It's a really great game unless you're me because I have, as you saw, no athleticism and like could not even walk across the ice, much less run and slide. But I would always try to play and like I'd make it two inches and I'd fall down. I always lost. But this one day, I was hanging out with my friends Masha and Natasha, and we were outside of our apartment building as the evening, and I don't know. It was October, November, so it was probably 10 degrees or so. It was cold. And um, we were out there with some other kids from our apartment, and we were playing that the game. I don't remember what it's called. The run and slide on the ice game. And you know, I ran and I slid and I fell down, which was no surprise to anyone, except this time it like really hurt, like really hurt, not here or here so much, but right here, it hurt so bad. And I was like, I think something's wrong. You know, I tried to blow it off and keep hanging out, but I was like, I got to go inside. This is really uncomfortable. So I went inside our apartment and there was a life group that was getting ready to start. I have in fact been going to life groups since the 90s. So I'm an OG of the life group scene. But um, there was a life group going on in our apartment, and there was a doctor named Alexei who was a part of the life group. And so he looked at um, my wrist, and it was swelling and bruising, and he said, you know, I, this looks bad. It looks like it's probably broken. So awesome. Good for me. Um, I fell down on the ice and broke my arm. So we bundled up my mom and me and Alexi to go to uh, this hospital that was a couple miles away uh, and get my arm looked at. So we go out and, you know, it's evening, it's probably around 7 o'clock by this point. It's getting colder and we're standing there waiting for this tram to come get us. And we wait and we wait and it's not coming. 
um, which in Russia in the 90s, it was right after communism fell, nothing worked, so it was like no surprise that transportation wasn't running. So we had to walk. So we walked two miles um, to the hospital in the dark with a broken arm, right? So my kids never have any, any juice on complaining because their mother walked with a broken arm in like negative five degree weather for two miles through the snow to get my arm seen. So like I win that always. Like there's no way that they can complain. But so we finally walk and get to this hospital that's near the central market. And we go in to the emergency room, which really is just a line of people down this hallway. I mean, it's gross, y'all. They were throwing up. They were bleeding. And like you just waited in this long line. But I was an American. And so they wanted to like put their best foot forward. And they sent me to the front of the line. So my mom and I go up to the front of this line. And we go into this exam room, which is completely filthy. And this doctor, she was about in her 40s comes in, she had just come out of surgery, and she's literally covered in blood, like blood all over her shirt and her arms and whatever. And I didn't really, really get how gross that was from a disease standpoint, but my mom is like cringing in this room with me. But so the doctor comes and looks at my arm and she says, oh, yep, it's broken. And we're like, great, well, can we get a cast? No, you can't get a cast here. This, if you're under 18, we only do casts at this other hospital. Now, in Russia, because in communism, they guaranteed everyone a job, they come, came up with these ridiculous systems so that they could employ people to work the systems. So certain hospitals would do certain things at different times and didn't really make sense. But we were told, you're going to have to go to this other children's hospital to get your arm set. So they knew that the transportation wasn't running, so they called an ambulance um, to come get me. So we pile in the ambulance and head to the children's hospital. And we're sitting back there, and it's kind of slipping on the snow a little bit because it's Siberia. And suddenly they pull over, and we're like, this is not the hospital. And this one guy hops out and then hops back in with this bag. And I kid you not, they stopped for vodka in the ambulance on the way. The stereotypes are true. So my ambulance pulled over to reload on vodka, and then they finished taking me to the kids' hospital. True story. Um, So anyway, we eventually got enough alcohol in the car and made it to the hospital. And so we go in, and um, they wouldn't let my mom come back with me. So I'm this 12-year-old going into, you know, hoping my Russian's good enough to come out with a cast. And um, so they take me into this back room where uh, it was a bunch of doctors around a table drinking and smoking. And uh, there were no other patients back there, which is not really a good sign, but there was no one else back there. And so one of the doctors, you know, sets his alcohol down and goes um, to take an x-ray. And we're in there, and he's a little tipsy, and I keep asking, like, for the bib, you know, the, I don't even know what it's called. But I, like, see it hanging, and I'm like, I'm I'm supposed to wear that? You know, like, I'm 12, but I know enough to know that in the movies, you, like, have to put this thing on. You know, I'm like, no, no, you don't need it. And I was like, no, I want to have kids someday. Like, give me the bib. So finally, I fight with him enough, and he lets me put on the bib. They take the x-ray, and he leaves. And then another doctor who's incredibly drunk comes in to the room to do my cast. And so I'm like, okay, let's just get this done with. Like, I'm tired of being with drunk doctors. Like, I want to just go home. So um, you come in, and like, and he had put the x-ray up on the screen, or like the, I don't know what it's called, 
You know what I'm talking about, like the light that comes through. He had it backwards. So he kept thinking it was my right arm that was broken, not my left arm. And I was like, no, 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 look, like this one's swelling, it's broken, like this is my broken arm. And the doctor's like, nyet, nyet, nyet. He's like showing me, like, no, look, it's your right hand. And I'm like, I promise, I know which arm is in pain. Like, I'm like, look, it's backwards, like it's the other way around. So after about three tries, finally I get a cast on my left arm, and I was able to go home. So moral of the story is don't let a drunk Russian doctor set your arm. Another way that we could look at it, though, is what's broken can't fix you. And that's the title of today's message. What's broken can't fix you. These doctors were impaired, and they couldn't fix me. And in life, that's the way it goes, too. That's so often when we're having a hard time, when we're in pain, when we need healing, we look to the people around us to help heal us and to help fix us. But as much as they would love to, they're just people. And they're impaired and they're limited. And they can never give us what we were created to only receive from God. And that's what we're going to talk about today, about how we meet with Jesus in our place of pain and what that looks like in community. Because I think for those of us who attend church a lot, you know, we hear a lot about community. And the Bible talks extensively about the value of community and doing life together. You know, when God made Adam, he said it wasn't good for man to be alone. So he created Eve. And then in the New Testament, we see Jesus sitting out the disciples two by two. And then in the book of Acts, we see the church forming. And obviously, this sense of relationships and community is a God-breathed concept. But they can never really give us what Jesus was designed to give us. So that's what we're going to look at today. How do we get our needs met in God in the midst of community? And we're going to look at Luke 5, 17 through 25. I think it's coming up. But let me read it to you. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him, let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this blasphemer? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been laying on, and went home, glorifying God. Now, when I look and read this passage, there's a lot of things that jump out to me. I think typically I look and I, I'm like, wow, this is one of the first times we see Jesus really talking about his power to forgive sin. You know, you can look and say, man, I want to be a friend like those guys who are carrying their friend through the crowds. There's lots of things we can take away. But this morning, I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at this through the lens of the paralyzed man. 
I want to kind of take us a little bit into what I see some characteristics in him. And I know that I don't think any of us in here are paralyzed, but we all have limitations. We all have things that inhibit us. We all have things that impair us, you know, whether that's really broken histories, um, mental illness issues, maybe it is a physical issue. In some way, we can all relate to the man who needed healing, who needed a touch from God, and who needed a breakthrough. So I'm going to kind of mark down three things that when I look at this, I, I see this must be what this man was like, okay? The first is that he was humble. And we see this in a few ways. The first is he admitted that he couldn't do it. He admitted that he needed help, right? He said, yes, I need healing. I need help. And for a lot of us, that's a really hard thing to do. It's hard for us to admit, you know what? Maybe my drinking is getting a little out of control. Maybe this flirtation I have with a coworker is starting to get into a really dangerous place. Maybe this uh, distance in my marriage isn't good. Maybe the relationship that I have with my roommate is with my roommate is starting to get a little too codependent. We really don't like to admit that, hey, you know what? Maybe I do need help. But this man had no problem saying, I need a touch from God. And he was willing to appear weak in front of really influential people. I think that if you read that passage, you see that that there was a ton of people crowded around this house. And then the inside were the, it said doctors, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. They really were the who's who's of this man's uh, city, of the community. And he was willing to get very vulnerable in front of people that probably made him feel incredibly insecure and say, hey, I need help, right? He didn't care who saw his need. He didn't care because what was more important than his reputation was that he had a touch from Jesus. And I think that's a mark on humble people, that they value getting to Jesus more than their reputation. And I see that as a mark on this guy's life. Another way he was humble is that he allowed people to help him. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get kind of offended if people offer to help me. Like, you don't think I can do it? You don't think I can make Thanksgiving dinner by myself? You don't think I can, you know, whatever. It's like I take it personally that you think I'm this weak person that I would need help, right? But he's not too proud. I mean, he's not so proud that he wouldn't let people help him. And, you know, as I was thinking about it and thinking about that, There's a lot of people who, when they need something, would rather that you just validate their need than they would want you to help them get better, right? Like maybe there's a family member who, instead of dealing with their issue with another family member, they just want everyone to rearrange the plans for Thanksgiving so that they don't have to deal with this dynamic going on. Or maybe a roommate who you know, doesn't want to deal with their thing, so they they don't want you to help them figure it out. They just want you to rearrange everything around their limitation. Do you know people like that, or have you been like that? And I'm not talking about, obviously, in this case, for someone with a physical disability, of course, we need handicapped spaces and things like that. But humble people don't expect you to rearrange the world around them, right? And so often, In our place of pride, we don't want to get low and say, hey, you know what? We need help. We need transformation in ourselves. We look for people to validate and say, yeah, you should be hurt by that family member. Yeah, you should make everybody else drive way over there 
so that you don't have to see them. Or, yeah, you know what? Your spouse did cheat on you. You're totally validated in having an affair with that coworker. Or whatever it is, we look for validation. Proud people look for validation. Humble people look for transformation. Okay, I'm going to say it again because maybe if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. Proud people look for validation. Humble people look for transformation. This man said, I don't care who sees me. I don't care that it's going to take other people carrying me. I mean, that would be really humbling to be carried and then not be able to get through and then have to go up on a roof. And actually, I was doing some research into what the houses were like back then. And it would have been like there would have been tiles laid and then sod and grass on top. Like they would have made a mess trying to open up the roof to get this guy in. This guy did not care what it looked like to other people. He was desperate for a touch of God in his life. So he was humble. The second thing I see about this guy was that he was willing to let go of his old identity immediately. I don't know if you've ever had a love-hate relationship with an issue in your life. You hate it, but you kind of love it because somehow in a dysfunctional way, it's become part of your identity and it's become who you are in the group. You're the one that never gets a date. You're the one that always deals with depression. You're the one that never has money. You're the one, and it's somehow become your identity. And it feels vulnerable sometimes to see transformation in our lives because we don't know who that new person is going to be. Like when Liz gets set free of something, who am I going to be? You know, I struggle with an anxiety disorder. I've talked about it a lot when I've been up here. And as much as I hated it, in some sense, I'm like, but I don't really know who I am without it. Like, how am I going to think? How do I interact? What will my marriage look like? How will I parent if I'm this different person? And there's some sort of unhealthy relationship that sometimes we can have with our inability and with our issues, the things that we need heal for. We want it healed so badly, but we're so terrified to not be that person anymore. And I love that the passage of Scripture said, Jesus said, rise and walk. And it says, immediately he stood up, picked up his mat, and went out. He didn't hesitate. You know, if it was me, I would have been like, oh, gosh, what if I stand up and I'm not really healed and I look stupid and I like fall down or I stumble or what if I walk with a limp? You know, all those scenarios are going to be running through my mind. But I'm so challenged by his response, which was, no, immediately He stood up, he picked up his mat, he picked up the thing that used to own him, and he's holding it now, and he's like, great, I'm out, peace out, y'all have a good one. You know, he owned his new identity in Christ. So he was humble, he was willing to let go of his old identity. And then the third thing that jumps out to me about this is that he had friends. He had friends. So that may sound like a strange thing for me to notice in the passage, but it's what I kept coming back to And I was like, why does that seem significant to me? And I think it's because he was a cripple. He had no social standing. There was nothing anyone had to gain by hanging out with him. Like, he could offer them nothing. He couldn't work, so he certainly couldn't have paid these people. There was no benefit for these people to carry him. His family would have probably said his family carried him. So who are these friends? Why would he be friends with them? Why would they be friends with him? And it's really simple. He was a good friend. In the midst of his huge need, he must have said, hey, how's your day? 
hey, how can I be praying for you? Yeah, can you, yes, I do need prayer. Can you be praying for me to get healed? How can I be praying for you? Have you ever had a friend who's gone through a breakup? No one? Yes, you have. You have. Okay. Um, and, you know, like the first week or two, it's like, yeah, man, bummer. I'm sorry. Mm, yep. It's rough. And then they keep talking about it. Like, they keep replaying the breakup conversation. So, do you think we're going to get back together? Because he said this. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? They, like, don't let it go. And you're kind of like, dude, move on. Like, this is over. Like, please stop talking about this. Because when we go through pain, we tend to get incredibly introspective. And we can easily become self-absorbed with our problem. And this man had every reason to be absorbed with his problem. But there was something about him that continued to look to other people in the midst of his need that made him a good friend, right? He wasn't, he could have been sitting around saying, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm, I, you know, sorry, it was a hard day at work. At least you have a job. At least you can work, you know, or whatever. The thing is, but I, there was something about him. I think it goes back to that humility that, yeah, he needed a breakthrough, but he recognized that the people around him did as well. And he was the kind of man that even in his pain was able to build friendship. And not just friendships, not just like, hey, we're going to the mall. No one goes to the mall. That's a bad example. Hey, we're going to get coffee. (laughs) I'm aging myself. I don't know why I said that. Delete that from the podcast. Um, Like, hey, we're going to get coffee. You want to come? You know, it's not like that. They're like, hey, dude, we will dig through a roof for you. Maybe we'll go to prison for it. But like, we are that committed to you. That was the kind of friendships that even in his pain, this man built. He invested in community in the midst of his pain. And I think it's a beautiful thing about him. And you know, while he did have friends who would go to extremes for him, I'm sure they hurt his feelings sometimes right? It's like, man, those are great friends. But I bet they did things that didn't meet his expectations sometimes. This was a great day. They like exceeded all expectations and challenged all of us to be amazing friends. But I'm sure they had days where they, you know, like, oh, shoot, it's his birthday. Did anybody say happy birthday? You know, or they had things that maybe made him feel overlooked because they weren't people. What was their role of his community? Their role was they brought him to Jesus. The role of our community, the role of our life groups, the role of me as a pastor is not to meet your need, is not to say, oh, I'm going to be able to say just the right thing at just the right moment, but to say, hey, let me help you get to Jesus. I'm going to do it imperfectly. Your life group, your spouse, your friendships are laced with imperfection, best intentions, but imperfection because we're people. And the role of community is to help bring us to Jesus when we need him to heal us. And you know, I have great friends. I have really, really great friends. And when I was going through that uh, really dark night of the soul kind of moment for me with my anxiety issues, um, I had amazing friends who would pick up my mat and do everything, you know, to get me into the presence of Jesus, to get me what I needed. And they're incredible and they love me so much. But Some of those friends hurt me really badly even this past month. I woke up one morning, totally unintentionally. Like I said, they love me, but they're just not perfect. I woke up, I looked on social media, which you really shouldn't do first thing in the morning, but sometimes I do, and I was scrolling, and lo and behold, I see that some of my friends, who I've been really good friends with for a long time, had gotten together for a girls' weekend, and I wasn't invited. Have you ever done that? You look on social media and you see all the things you didn't get invited to. 
So that was me that morning. And I just was like, they didn't invite me. Now, of course, there was a great reason why they didn't. And I knew the reason. It was not spiteful or anything. It was totally legit. But nonetheless, I wish they would have communicated, hey, we're doing this. This is why. So I didn't wake up and see it on Instagram and be like, no one loves me. You know, they love me. They've carried me through roofs. And yet, they're still not enough. Because I have this insecurity about my personality. I, all growing up, I desperately wanted to be the sweet, cute, bubbly girl next door. And I was not. I'm still not. And it makes me feel insecure because in my mind, that's who everyone loves. Everyone loves like the sweet, nice, bake your brownies girl next door. And I'm just a little spicy and feisty. And I don't play that role well. And it's been an insecurity for me for so long. In high school, it played out like no one wants to marry this intense girl. You know, they all want the sweet girl or whatever. And then I get married and hey, my need is still there. Why? Because people can't meet my need. I don't know if you know that, but if you think when you get married, that insecurity is going to go away, it's not. Right? So then it's like, oh, well, my friend. Then in my mind, I'm like, man, if I was like sweet and bubbly, they would have wanted me at that weekend. But they're like, no, we don't want Liz. Liz is going to like have some harebrained ideas and be like, let's do this and be crazy and whatever. And that's not what they want. So that's why they didn't invite me. That's what's playing through my mind. And what I was tempted to do was call them and be like, do you not love me anymore? Like what is going on? But what I knew I really needed was Jesus to speak to my pain. I didn't need to expect the people around me to meet my needs to do it perfectly, to do it to my preference. What I needed was to believe the best in the people around me and to meet with God in my place of insecurity. So instead of picking up the phone and calling him, I got into the presence of God and I said, Jesus, this hit on my insecurity and I need you to speak to me. Because right now I think I'm just way too much to handle and I need to hear your voice. And I pulled out my journal and I said, you know, I'm going to listen because I believe God speaks. I'm going to listen to what he wants to say to me. And this is what he said. Liz, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, you're spicy, fiery, and a little intense, but that is just the way I like you, baby girl. You have a wild and untamed streak that is beautiful to me. You, Liz Griffin, are the apple of my eye. And you know, that's what I needed. And as soon as I heard those words from my maker, I was okay because God gives us people to walk alongside, to say, hey, no, no, keep going, keep fighting, keep believing, to enjoy life with, to do life with, but ultimately our needs are not met in our community. Our needs are met in our Savior. I'm going to ask everyone to go ahead and stand up with me this morning. And I want everyone to just ask yourself this question before God, which is, am I letting the people around me help me? Or am I being defensive? Am I letting them carry me to Jesus? And the second question is, whose presence am I trying to get in to get my needs met? And that's just something I want you to do business with 
between you and God this morning or this week. But I also know there's some people here who are like, man, I, I need people to get me to Jesus. I desperately want to get in the presence of a healer like that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask everyone to just close your eyes and bow your head down. And if that's you this morning, if you say, man, I want to know Jesus as a savior, as a healer, I want you just to raise your hand if you want to meet Jesus this morning. And if that's you, I want you to just pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I love you. Thank you for being a healer and a restorer. Thank you for seeing me in my brokenness and loving me. And I give my life to you. I choose to follow you. And Jesus, I do just pray over this whole group today. God, we just say that we love you. And I ask, Father, that we would be the kind of friends that carry the broken on their mats into your presence. And we'd be the kind of people who aren't too proud to come to you. God, that we would be people who do, in this house, that we do relationships well. In this house, let us do friendship and community well. But let us be people who are met and found in you. 